Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Jim Gallagher, the drummer for the Astronauts. Back in the early 60s, surf music captured the sound of sun, sand, and summer fun, and accordingly, most surf bands were from California. But the Astronauts were from Boulder, Colorado, a thousand miles away from the nearest ocean. The landlocked band became more successful than the rival Beach Boys in Japan, which was just part of the group's incredible story. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Jay. It's good to be here. Yeah. Today. Of the classic astronauts lineup, four of you graduated from Boulder High School. Dennis Lindsay, Bob Damon on guitars, bassist Stormy Patterson, and drummer Jim Gallagher. That's you. <laughs> the outlier was Rich Fifield, right. the guitarist who moved here from Nebraska. Growing up as a kid in Boulder in the 1950s had to be fantastic. Small college town, your dad ran a car dealership. I had grown up until I was nine in Chicago. And it was a different environment. We lived in an apartment that was the big city vibe. We got here, and we stayed with my aunt and uncle on a farm out north of Boulder. Chickens and the whole bit. It was a transition that was really welcomed by me as a kid because there was lots of stuff to do. Then it was pretty much like Mayberry RFD. It was a small town, and I had a lot of close friends. It was, of course, before all electronics, so when we were kids, everybody played together all day, had dinner, went out and played hide-and-seek at night until it was time to go to bed. It was like a movie of the perfect life. It really was fun. Had a good time. What inspired you to start playing the drums? In fifth grade, of course, I was driving my mom nuts during the summer. So my mom told me that there was a summer music program that they were offering down at Boulder High, asked me if I had any interest, and I said, yeah, I did. And she said, well, what would you like to try? And I said, well, how about the drums? She said, okay, we'll sign you up. So I went down there for the summer, and if you can imagine the scenario, probably 30 kids all playing on school chairs on the second floor of Boulder High, and it's 100 degrees, okay? <laughs> and Miss Colson, bless her heart, is up there trying to teach everybody how to play the drums. And all of a sudden, it kind of got interesting, because she was a good teacher. Finally learned to do a few things with the sticks, and so that's where I kind of caught the interest. And then that year, when I went back to grade school, they had an orchestra, and so I went into the orchestra. That's how I started to learn to read music. And then when I went to junior high and to Boulder High, I was in the band, I found that it was an easy way to get an A, in that, which was a big issue with my dad, mom, because I wasn't really interested in school much, but I was sure interested in those drums. It was probably my sophomore year. I had met Bob Demon off and on. He was older, but I knew who he was, and I knew that he played guitar. And he had an amp, and so he was kind of the big dog in the neighborhood because we'd hear him down there dinking around. So he and Stormy Patterson decided to play. A guy named Brad Leach joined them, and he was also in Boulder High. These guys were older than I was. They were playing their first radio gig on GBOL in Boulder. It was called High School Intermission, and it was produced by the radio club at Boulder High. They were set up to do that, and Brad Leach's aged grandmother passed away in Kansas, and so they were going to the funeral. So they called me and asked me to sit in, and so I did. And 
I guess I was better than Brad. That's how it started. Brad went on to become the Boulder County Sheriff. And I always hoped I never got stopped because I didn't know if he harbored a grudge or not. You know, it was a little chancy. <laughs> so that band becomes the Stormtroopers. The Stormtroopers, and it was because of Stormy. And Stormy was the big magnet of the band. Stormy was the high school wrestling champion, Colorado. And he was a good-looking guy and muscular and all-American guy. Cowboy. Had a lot of cowboy going. That's why it was the Stormtroopers, and it was spelled T-R-O-U-P-E-R-S. Didn't mean anything to me. I was just a kid. The war was something nobody even thought about anymore, and nobody said anything about it until we started appearing at CU. A professor there contacted us and said that he was offended. We didn't know why, and then he told us. All of a sudden, we were stuck with having to rename the band. Couldn't come up with anything. That was about the time the space program had started, so we just took the name Astronauts. Scott Carpenter was a Boulderite. Was that yep. an impactful? Yeah, that had an impact on it, okay. of course. Yeah. Scott, one of NASA's first spacemen. I think it was Carol's grandmother <laughs> was all excited because she thought that she'd married one of the real astronauts. <laughs> that was 54 years ago that Carol and I got married. St. Carol. St. Carol. No, St. Carol. St. Carol, yeah. Well, so, same Carol. Not quite the same Carol, but St. Carol. So you played rock and roll and the R&B hits of the day around the campus and around town. The astronauts were a terrific live act. There was world-class musicianship between Rich Fifield on guitar and you on drums. The guys were handsome, gifted entertainers, verging on comedians in some yeah, cases. Yes. Dennis Lindsay had uh, aspired to be an actor, and he had been to the Pasadena Playhouse to study, and he was a great musician and a heck of a ladies' man. And he also had a comedic streak, which was just terrific because no other bands would do any comedy. It's not talked about. I mean, everybody was there, you know, to grind it out. And so he'd do the darndest things. We'd take a break and he'd walk back onto the stage in a dress. Wouldn't say a word. Nobody would say anything. People were wondering what was going on. Then he had a repertoire of freely good cheesy jokes, Henny Youngman type of jokes, and he would tell those jokes. And the kids all loved that. Rich Fifield was a fantastic, and still is, a fantastic guitar player. He had the talent, he had the knack, and really drew things together. Bob was on rhythm, he kept the backbeat going, and Stormy originally played guitar, but then went to bass, and it became a challenge to him, and he got quite good at it. We all kind of grew musically together. Little aside, Bob kept the books, Bob Demon. We'd get paid, like at Tulagi, go in and there were stacks of dollar bills all the way around the guy's desk and he'd say that corner stack is yours so we'd get through and while we were tearing the stuff down Bob would divvy out the money so somebody said something about income taxes and everybody went what? (laughs) well are you guys paying income tax? and we said well I don't know I don't think so are we? and nobody was it was just this cash deal so we went to an accountant that was I think Bob's parents accountant And he looked at the paperwork, and he's going through it, and he goes, so you fellows have never paid any tax on this money? And we said, no. And he said, don't leave this room. And we went, what? And he goes, don't leave this room. You guys are in trouble. 
So we filled out the forms and we all paid an estimate. I'm sure there was penalty and interest. But boy, after that, the IRS became a real word that we all understood. You were a concert act, and that infers all the showbiz trappings of the day. Matching amplifiers and guitars, and you wore tuxedos and patent leather shoes. Could you buy that stuff off the rack? Not in Denver. By that time, we were going to California. There was a place in downtown L.A., right near the original Badge 714, as I always call it, police building, and it was called Academy Award Clothiers. And it must have been 100,000 square feet. And everybody bought their stuff there, tuxedos, suits, and they usually had a dozen or so of the same outfits. We'd go to California, and we'd go buy another outfit. And it was reasonably priced. <laughs> it was reasonably, Well made, yeah. but reasonably well, priced. pretty well made. Okay. <laughs> Let's go surfing now. Everybody's learning how. Come on a safari with me. At the time... The Beach Boys were scoring big on the national charts. Songs like Surf and Safari. RCA Records was getting antsy. They were looking for someone to compete with them. Even though you had never played surf music or even surfed, I'm guessing, you wound up with a long-term recording contract. How did that transpire? We were all enrolled at CU. The popularity was progressing to the fact that it was hurting our grades because we weren't able to study and go to class. So it came spring break, and we had received an opening with RCA through the RCA distributor in Denver. His name was Ward Terry, and we had played his daughter's coming out party or something, and he was impressed with the band. So he got us an opening for an interview in California at RCA at uh, Sunset Nivar. So we all had a powwow, and for some reason, Bob and I were selected. We're going to go out there, and we're going to try this, and if it doesn't happen, we're going to disband because we couldn't go to school and do the band. And so we went out there, and we met with Steve Scholes. And Steve Scholes was the guy that discovered Elvis. So we were at the top of the ladder for an interview. And we went in. We had the cassette we had made probably in my folks' basement. We had gone to the regiment and bought suits. We looked the part. So we're there, and the phone rings, and he's on the phone. He says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. They're killing us. They're killing us. They're killing us in Malibu this afternoon, and we didn't know what he's talking about. And he was talking about the Beach Boys. So he covers the phone, and he looks at us, and he goes, do you guys play surf music? And Bob said, yeah, we play surf music. <laughs> he goes, good, just a minute. So he got back. He says, I'm talking to these guys. I'll get back to you. And I'm sitting there, and I mean, the play has changed. So he said, I'll tell you what, Steve Schultz said, I, we've got an A&R man, Al Schmidt. He's going to be out on the road. He's going to make four stops, and we'll include you in the stop. And he'll come through and listen to you guys, and then we'll get back to you. So we were just elated. My gosh, they were sending somebody to listen to us, especially after talking to this guy, Steve Schultz, who was legendary. We get back. And I'll tell you what, man, we locked the door. We're down there practicing surf music. <laughs> Everybody's gone surfing. Everybody's gone surfing. Surfing USA. We'll all be planning that room. We're going to take real soon. We're waxing down our surfboards. We can't wait for June. We'll all be gone for the summer. We pretty well had it down. We had the surf set down. So Al Schmidt came to town. We had him over to Bob's house. Bob and Barb were married then, and they were the only ones that had a rental house. So we took him there, and we had stakes. I think we all chipped in and bought the stakes. Then we went up to Tulagi, 
where he was going to listen to us. And we got on the stage, and Bob said, you know what? Let's just do our regular thing. Let's not do this surf thing, because we had a really good opening on our act. And so we did. We threw caution to the wind and did it. We got through with the first set, nervous as cats, right? Walk off, and Al Schmidt's sitting there, and he goes, God, you guys are terrific. And he's from Brooklyn. My God, you guys are terrific. And we'd never been around anybody from Brooklyn. So it was all a little strange to us, right? He said, I'll tell you right now. He said, I'm going back. Your name's in there. The other groups didn't compare to you. Usually at this point, he told us that he would get up and go back to his hotel because he's flying around. He stayed. He wanted to hear the rest of the show. So he was really enthused about the band, which made a big difference when it came to recording and stuff because he knew the talent of the band. We went on to make 13 albums for RCA. Never got a hit. Came close, but never got a hit. Oh, I wish I knew what they were talking about. had three major hits in Japan where we sold millions of records, but nothing here ever really happened. That's the way it was. Looking back on it, we kind of said, well, they did have Elvis. They didn't need to spend any of their money on bands, right? But I thought they did a credible job. I just think that the energy of when the band performed live never really transformed to the records. It just wasn't there. And I listen to the stuff now, the live album, the one that we made at Tulagi, and I can feel it, but it doesn't come through. The best thing about that album was Hal Moore introduced the band at Tulagi that night. Hal Moore from KIMN Radio, the right. big top he, 40 giant he was, here in town. They were the guys that were pushing the astronauts. And so he stepped up to the mic and he went, live from Boulder, home of the University of Colorado, Tulagi proudly presents... The Fabulous Astronauts. And we hit it. that you were actually making a record, that you were on stage, that it was all going down in history. Now, we shan't diminish the legacy. Yes, uh, not hits per se. A lot of bands suffered at the time from that syndrome of not being able to capture their live act on record. But Surfing with the Astronauts, the very first album, charted nationally, making you the first act out of Colorado to make an impact on the Billboard charts. Yeah, that's correct. Right? Yeah. And the song Baja was written by Lee Hazelwood, who penned most of Nancy Sinatra's hits, but he gave you that surf instrumental, which is considered a classic. It's on every surf music compilation to this day. (laughs) 
on the aforementioned KIMN, Baja went to number one and gained you a following here that was unsurpassed. You were the biggest stars anyone had ever seen around here for a time. That's correct. I humbly say that that is correct. <laughs> the sounds of the astronauts. By the way, uh, if you would like to join the International uh, Astronaut Fan Club, call 455-2265. The number, once again, 455-2265, or mail uh, the necessary information to 2936 Stewart Street, and when you do call uh, that particular number, ask for Karen Wilson. The number, once again, 455-2265. Ask for Karen Wilson for the International Astronaut Fan Club. And the two live albums, one at Tulagi, the infamous club in Boulder on University Hill, but one recorded at Club Baja, which was your club. So well, to a degree, I mean, how did that work? Vern Byers was a stand-up bassist who played professionally. And so he had this ballroom down at 13th and Stout, I think, across from the old police station upstairs. He wanted us to play there, and we, were, we said we would do it because it was a different crowd, from, and it was a larger capacity. It was different from Boulder, and we did have a good following in Denver. So when we got in there, he changed the name to the Club Baja because he wanted everybody to know that the astronauts were playing there. He offered to sell us an interest in the Club Baja for a dollar a guy. We decided not to do it, which was one of the smartest things we ever did because the Club Baja went downhill after we hit the road, caught fame, and so we would have been stuck with it, and I think he lost everything. He was a good guy. A little too busy with the sauce, but he was a good guy. And he went on to promote the Beatles show at Red Rocks he in did. 1964. He, he was the one on record for putting up the money, right? Yep, and he was a good promoter. He really was. He was a big band musician. He tried to mix the entertainment at the club. One weekend, he'd have Glenn Miller hit night. And then the next weekend, he'd have the current hit band in Denver, the Moonrakers, or somebody would be there. And the crowd didn't know which night was going to be what. And I think that really cost him. And then the other thing that he did that was tough is that he would have great soul groups on one weekend and then all the milk toast groups on another weekend and so the crowds didn't intermingle very well in those days. It was a great venue. It was like playing in a barn. The acoustics were great. <laughs> they would blow the place apart. They had to put a wall down the middle of it because the fire department came in and the place was too packed. The astronauts achieved a working success, that circuit of colleges and gyms and bars. And it was a job, and it was a great job. It was 21 hours of baloney while you're traveling, setting up, tearing down everything, but three hours of heaven on the stage because the band was really good and it was always really accepted by the crowd. The kids were always excited to see us because we played in some places where I don't think there'd been a lot of people that it appeared. <laughs> <laughs> that Midwest is real big out there, I got to tell you. And Texas, that's a big place. <laughs> <laughs> got to do a few neat things. You appeared on Hullabaloo on TV, which was the great music variety show of the time. Mm -hmm. And you also got to appear in several teen movies. Wild <laughs> on the Beach, uh -huh. and Out of Sight, uh -huh. and Surf Party. Uh -huh. Our manager was a good guy. He really wasn't in tune with what needed to be done with a group like the Astronauts. 
he was more into easy listening kind of music. And that's the kind of acts that he had been booking. He wasn't really geared for what needed to be done with the astronauts and the push. The one good thing, though, is he knew somebody in the movie business, and he did get us some bit parts. And he also knew some people in the television business, so we played a lot of those early morning Saturday dance shows in L.A. And Anyway, he got us into this movie with Bobby Vinton. We thought, well, you know, here's a guy who's got a hit. This is going to be good for us to be in this. We got to the movie lot, and we were all really excited. And they came out and they said, okay, guys, here's the deal. We're going to have wardrobe. Then we're going to go to hair and makeup. We're going, you know, whatever. And Stormy goes, not for me. (laughs) He said, I'm not wearing any makeup. Now, this is a guy who was a state wrestling champ, right? So we said, well, now, wait a minute, Stormy. You got to think about this. No, no, it ain't going to happen. The guy who's coordinating the thing said, that's okay, guys. We'll figure something out. Because it wasn't like we were going to appear in Ben-Hur. (laughs) I mean, the makeup wasn't an issue. The hair wasn't an issue, right? So we went ahead and did it. He kind of reneged after that, after we saw it. And he said, well, maybe I should have. He didn't realize the face shine because they used incredibly bright lights in the movies, especially in that time. We did the movie thing. It was an easy thing to do. We had to set up, but we lip synced. One day where the cameras were behind us on this small crowd of people, And then the next day, the cameras were this way, showing the band. And so then they dubbed it all together, so it looked like we were playing to this group. The first day we went, we all wore plaid shirts, and then the next day we all wore striped shirts. So the continuity was off. (laughs) A little. A little bit. So this woman came up, and she was the continuity director. You would have loved her. She must have been about 75 or 80, I mean, and she'd done it for years, had pins in her hair and ready to sew things up and stuff and she came up and she said to us uh did you guys change clothes and we said yeah we did and she said that's all right i don't think it's going to matter a bit (laughs) 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 and it didn't (laughs) about six weeks after that we each got a check for three thousand dollars for appearing in that movie all of a sudden the movies were real interesting to us (laughs) because it was easy money So he did get us another two or three movie deals, and they were the same kind of thing. The one I remember that was the toughest for me was that they were going to film on Malibu Beach. The crowd's dancing in the sand, and we're standing on the beach playing, and they had to have the light early, so we had to be down there like about 5.30 in the morning. The other guys get out, and they grab their instruments, and no amps needed. It's a lip sync. Got to have the drums. So I'm lugging the drums down through the sand, setting the drums up in the sand. It's getting hot, real hot. So are you. I'm getting hot. I'm thinking, 3,000, 3,000. It's worth it. It's worth it. So we get the deal done. And by that time, the sun was up, and it was really hot. So I had to tear the drums down. Those guys went and got in the car put their guitars back in the trunk, sat in the car and waited for me. So that was my experience with the movies. Still get royalties. It's so amazing because we had to join the Screen Actors Guild to appear, and they must have better records than the IRS. And it's not very much money, but you think about we played these bit parts in B-movies and we still get money. Can you imagine what the people that starred in movies must make? It must be incredible.
to the great irony of the astronaut's career that over in Japan, you had your greatest success going overseas. How did you guys discover that they were bonkers for you over there? <laughs> the band was drifting along. We were doing well. We were making pretty good money for that time, uh, $100 a piece, a performance. That's when wages were 40 cents an hour. It was good money. Everybody was kind of blowing the money. <laughs> You're a kid, right? New cars, everybody's having a good time. The first year Carol and I were married, we were together 30 days. We were on the road all the time. So we got back, we were off the road, everybody's doing a little R&R, &R and Bob calls, and he was the leader of the band, and he said, everybody's got to come out to the house. And we said, well, you know, well, because we usually practiced when we were home. Believe it or not, we set up and practiced, even if we were home one day. And we had just come off a long one, and we said, well, you know, can it wait? And he said, no. He said, everybody just come on out here. So we went out there, and we're all sitting around in his family room, and he walks up to us, and he hands each one of us an envelope that's got our name on it. And we open the envelope up, and there's a check in there for each guy for, I don't know, three or $4,000. And we're going, whoa, this is unbelievable. I know Stormy's going, hmm, boy, a new car. I could just feel it in his blood, right? <laughs> Bob, being the older, said, okay, everybody just sit here. We're not going to do anything with this money until we talk to our manager to find out what's going on. So he calls the manager, and the manager knows us now personally pretty well and knows that we're pretty immature. We're just young guys. He said, don't do anything. Just sit there and let me call, and I'll find out what's going on. So we sat there for 42 minutes. <laughs> the longest 42 minutes of your life. And he calls up. He was also from Brooklyn, Leonard Poncher. And he goes, fellas, you aren't going to believe it. I just talked with him in New York. You boys are a hit in Japan. And we said, what? A hit in Japan. <laughs> right? We're going, really? He said, yeah, you sold thousands of records over there already. And that was the royalty on those records. He pursued that, and then we wound up going to Japan the first time for two weeks, and the second time we went, we went for three months. And we played Japan from Sapporo to Hiroshima. Two shows a day for three months on that tour. And when we came back, we were really good. <laughs> it was a tight act after that. experience in terms of the world being a lot bigger back yeah, then. So right. to get over to Japan, you show up, they've got 60-foot billboards with your likeness on them. It was just crazy. We couldn't leave the hotel because of the fans. It was not something that we had anticipated. When we landed there the first time, and by the way, we took Pan Am Flight 1 that goes around the world. I'll never forget it. What an honor it was for me, a kid from Boulder, Colorado, to be on this beautiful airplane going to Japan. We got off the plane, and there's all these people around on the rooftops and everything. And we thought, gee, I wonder what's going on. Somebody must be coming in. It turned out it was for us. The place was packed. It was great. Every time we played, it was sold out. And when we got through with that and came back to Colorado and wound up playing homecoming at the University of Missouri the following weekend and Louis Bar in Omaha, and we were kind of back in the grind. And so the band kind of lost its sheen for us at that point. 
What was the food like? Well, I grew up in Boulder. There was a twin burger, then McDonald's came. My mom fixed pot roast, meatloaf. It was this typical Midwestern diet. And so all of a sudden, there wasn't a lot to eat because <laughs> it was all different. We were doing two shows a day. The caloric output was just incredible. You could sit and eat all day, and you wouldn't put on any weight because I was sweating it off every night playing the drums. We finally found this green noodle soup in the train stations, which was turns out was ramen soup. And people must have thought we were nuts. We'd sit there and we'd eat bowls of it because <laughs> that was what there was to eat. We did appear at a lot of the Navy and military bases in Japan. And when we get there, they'd say, well, what can we get you? And we'd say, point us to the PX because they had hamburgers. They had real hamburgers. So we'd sit there and wolf down hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> was there an instance where you got free reign of a hotel or something, run up a room service tab because they thought you were... No, that was at the Hampshire House in New York, in Central Park South. A pretty tricky address, and we were there for a promotion for RCA. They said, just do what you want and help yourself, sort of a deal. And so we did. We ran up the room service tent, had an open party for the DJs, brought in cases of whiskey, whatever it took. And then about two or three months later, we got a bill from RCA because they didn't pay for any of that. And <laughs> came out of our pocket. Also, all of the recording costs that were associated with the astronaut albums, we paid for. There was no free ride. Subsequent albums, it wasn't just surf music. You tried on some of the other styles like hot rod music, right. which was its cousin to a degree. Back then, there was a division of labor with the songwriters who supplied songs to the producers and arrangers, right. and the bands themselves were just part of the creative chain. When a certain band came along right afterwards, the Beatles, uh, <laughs> and wrote their own material, that right. was the sea change. But back then, how did the astronauts navigate that particular model of song placement? We went with the winner. The songs we played were the current songs of the time. What I Say, Bo Diddley, Good Rockin' Tonight, all the great rock songs. A lot of the bands we had appeared with on multi-ticket deals, they'd be going great guns and then they'd play something that nobody knew and it would just fall on its face. So we were really gun-shy about appearing with original material. The recording business in those days, there were six songs on each side of a 33 and a third RPM record. So we would use a lot of stuff that was supplied to us by songwriters like Lee Hazelwood and other writers that were producing current hits. But oftentimes, and it always seemed like it was at 4 o'clock in the morning when everything was done, there were two sides left that had to be filled in the studio to finish the album. So there were times that we just would start plunking away and just perform, do a song, and that was it. And it went on the album. 
And boy, I'll tell you, ooh, boy, some of them were really bad. (laughs) I think 456 Gears might be one of the worst songs that we ever performed. (laughs) 456, 456 Gears. 456, 456 Gears. 456, 456 Gears. You allude to all the great acts that you were able to intersect with on the road on various bills. We did a West Coast tour with the Dave Clark Five. They really had a big hit there. Glad all over. They were nice guys. They were a long way from home. Every time we performed before them, they would come out and watch us. He told me one time, Dave said, I wish we were as good as you guys. That ambiance of the live performance was so good with the astronauts. Being out of place at a venue was the time that we opened for Wayne Newton at the Crescendo Club on Sunset Boulevard. Our manager, of course, thought this couldn't be anything better because that was his kind of music. Jackie Vernon, the comedian, opened, and then we played, and then Wayne Newton would come out. It was a 30-day deal, and we'd start to play, and the first thing we'd hear is, Turn it down! Right? Your three favorite words. Yeah, right? <laughs> turn it down, turn it down, right? And we'd hunker down. I mean, we weren't enjoying it. And then Wayne Newton would come out, schmooze the ladies in the audience and donkishin and everything, and we're in the back going, oh, brother, this is just about too much. Donkishin, darling, donkishin. 1964 was that sea change, the British invasion led by the Beatles. And I first heard the opening of I Want to Hold Your Hand, I knew that the astronauts had happened. Oh, yeah, I tell you something. I think you'll understand. And I say that something. Because it just was so good. It was just terrific music. So good, in fact, girl, I hopped in the car and went down and bought a copy of the record, came back and played the grooves off of it in our basement. I think that was when I really knew that it was pretty much over. For me personally, I got drafted in 1966, so it was over for me when that happened. It was a weird thing because I didn't quit. They didn't fire me. It just ended. My life just changed from that day on, so. There was some real irony that for a generation, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show is what inspired them to pick up an instrument or to be part of that club. You were just on the other side of that. They were the end of you as a recording act. Right, pretty much. Mm -hmm. What got me going was Elvis. First rock song I ever heard on the radio was Mystery Train. Train I ride Something in my DNA (laughs) went like that, and I was hooked on it. And after that, music just became my life. And it was a great life. Enjoyed every bit of it. That transition of civilian life, of a rock star (laughs) going into the military. That was pretty much it. In October of 1966, we were on the road, and we had played a lot of homecomings and stuff at that time. But I think I netted maybe $3,500 out of the band that month, which was good. And that's a lot of money. And those days, dollars, man, we were earning it. I got drafted on November 7th of 1966. In November, I made $93.61 as a private in the United States Army, and I had to low crawl through the sand to get the check from the paymaster. So life changed a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) 
the astronauts continued to a degree. You and Dennis Lindsay both ended up serving. But Rich kept it going. A few other iterations of the astronauts. You put those rock and roll days in a box and put it away, metaphorically speaking. (laughs) Uh, You were a businessman, raised a fantastic family. Astronauts had a triumphant reunion in 1989. Dennis Lindsay passed away after that in 91, and Bob Demon we lost in 2010. So that reunion had to be special. It was so much fun to do it just one more time. But it wasn't quite the same. It just wasn't quite the same. I'm proud of the band. The band did a lot for Colorado. We were the first rock band other than Gary Stites and the Satellites in the Boulder area. I've always been really thankful for what happened to me in the band. It's a good experience. So what's your favorite musician's joke? <laughs> All right. Why didn't the little drummer boy get into heaven? Why, Jim? Because he woke up the baby, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org.